You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we'll get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. Chapter 3. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again just want to praise you and thank you that you've given us this church to be a part of. We thank you for the individuals who make it up and the work that you're doing in their life. God, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to gather on a Sunday morning uh, in a building where we can encourage one another, pray for one another, and study the word together. God, I just thank you for all the ways that you bless this church and the way you've given us exactly what we need for right now. God, I pray that we would always be grateful and thankful for that. God, I'm thankful that we have a Bible that we can open up this morning um, in a language that we can read and understand together. God, I pray that you'd be with our time together today, that it would be an encouragement that you would teach us. And God, help us to be encouraged and convicted where we need it. Um, God, I pray that you'd give us a clear picture of what you desire for us as individuals um, and us as a church as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we'll be today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll read from chapter 2 to kind of set the context. Uh, the chapter break is more there so that the, um, the guys that did the chapter breaks mainly wanted to have um, references to the second coming at the end of each chapter. So they just threw a chapter break right in here. Because 19 and 20 of chapter 2 talk about the second coming. And, um, but what Paul has to say to us in verses 1 through 5 are relevant to what he said previously in chapter 2. So we'll start reading in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now in verse 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For ye yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as, it has come, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. I want to uh, approach this passage cautiously, um, because in... Obviously, in verse 18, Satan is mentioned, and there's reference to Satan in chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 3. And, you know, we typically don't make a a habit of talking about Satan too often. Um, I think it's obviously relevant when we come to passages about Satan as we're working through a book, verse by verse. Um, We obviously don't want to give Satan more attention than he deserves. We don't want to... Elevate him higher than he needs to be. Uh, But when Paul cautions this early church about Satan, I think we need to heed the warnings that he gives to them, recognizing that those warnings are also for us. Real quick, when just so we're all on the same page and talking today, when I say, when I reference Satan, I want to make sure we understand that uh, Satan is not a co equal with God, meaning that when we talk about God being uh, omniscient, all-knowing. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan's a created being. He's not the equal opposite of God. There's God who's the creator of everything, and so Satan naturally is in that grouping of created things. If you wanted to talk about a 
Um, an equal counterpart to Satan, you might would say Michael the archangel or Gabriel, another high-ranking angel that's referenced in Scripture. Um, Satan is not on the same playing field as God. Satan is not omnipresent like God is. So Satan is not everywhere. Sometimes, especially when we're growing up, Satan gets referenced a lot as though we're going to encounter Satan potentially this week. And I strongly believe that you guys will will not be anywhere near Satan this week, most likely. Um, Satan is a, a finite being. He's created. He's limited to space and time. Uh, so Satan is somewhere in the created realm, but most likely he's not anywhere near you and what you're doing this week at work. Um, I, I tend to think that Satan has bigger issues to deal with and, and maybe more... Uh, more mature and more sanctified Christians to deal with, at least from me. Um, I don't think Satan's concerned about me as much this week as he is about others on this earth. Now, in saying that, I will reference Satan. And when we reference Satan, I think that we, we include the angels and demons that are under his authority. When we can, and we can call that all Satan. Does that make sense? So if I say Satan may try to hinder what our church is doing, I don't specifically mean that Satan in his being is going to specifically try to hinder our church. But the, the demons that are controlled by Satan and what they're seeking to do all over this planet may. Um, and so any references to Satan today need to be understood in context of Satan's forces. Not just specifically Satan, but overall Satan's forces. Um, was Satan specifically hindering Paul, specifically Satan? Most likely. Um, Paul at the time was the main threat to Satan and what Satan wants to do at that time. Paul was the, the main proclaimer of the gospel. He was the main church planner at that time. So yeah, I think Satan was very preoccupied with hindering Paul and what Paul was wanting to do. That he posed the greatest threat to Satan's kingdom. Today we've got churches all over the earth. We've got... You know, major pastors that are doing major things for the kingdom. And so we can't all be experiencing threat from Satan specifically because Satan's not omnipresent. Okay, so in referencing Satan today, understand those references to be Satan's forces and not specifically Satan because I do not want to give him greater credit than he deserves. I don't want to to elevate him in your mind and give him more authority and give him more power than he deserves. In addition, when Satan does these things in Scripture, we have to understand that they are permitted by God ultimately. We see this in the book of Job. Satan is not permitted to do anything without God's permission. So ultimately, Satan is a tool that God uses. He is ultimately a tool that God uses for his purposes, for his glory. So Satan is not allowed to do anything without God's permission. And God does permit Satan to do evil, but we've talked about before, in God's sovereignty, he always turns that evil for his glory and for the good of his people. Okay, so make sure we're operating off of those two things, that Satan, when we talk about Satan today, we're not specifically talking about Satan necessarily, we're talking about all of his forces, um, and we are also saying that... Um, that in a sense, like we don't want to give more credit to Satan than he deserves. That ultimately he is submitted to God and his authority. That it's God who permits Satan to do anything. That Satan doesn't do anything outside of God's plan. Alright, so let's look at chapter 3 now. We've got references to Satan hindering Paul in chapter 2. And now there's great concern by Paul about the status, the state of this church in reference to what Satan may be trying to do to hinder their growth, hinder their sanctification, hinder their response to the gospel. Now, just to kind of recap, chapters 1 and 2. Essentially, chapters 1 and 2, Paul has said, the gospel came to you, church of Thessalonica, and you responded. You were convicted by the sin, and you responded to the gospel. We poured ourselves into you. We discipled you. We taught you everything that we know, and you responded to that. We taught you the word, and you received it. You heard it, and you received it. So chapters 1 and 2 have been all about how Paul and Timothy and Silas brought the gospel to the church, how the church responded, they got saved, and they continued to respond in the area of discipleship. 
They continued to grow. They continued to respond. They continued to follow the example of those that were that was being set by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. All right. Chapter three. Chapter three is now Paul saying, now that the honeymoon's over, what's it going to look like? Okay. Great that you've responded to the gospel. Great that you've been pursuing discipleship. But now that the honeymoon's over, will you continue to follow Christ? Because Paul recognizes we've been removed. We've been removed. We're not there investing in you guys anymore. And we may not be able to come back and invest in you the way that we want to. So was your response genuine? Was your response legitimate? Are you going to continue following Christ? It's almost similar to how, for those of you that have been to summer camp before, you go to summer camp, you get jacked up on, on listening to sermons every day, you're spending time with Christians all day. I mean, you're just pumped. I mean, you're just, you're just, feeling, you're just feeling completely close to God and like you're growing and you're learning. Then you come home from summer camp and, and a lot of times you come off that, off that pedestal and you, and you come back down to earth and you're back into your daily routine. And that's where Paul's concern, I think, is for these people. He says, man, we had, we had a great experience with you guys. We spent six months with you and we were pouring into you daily. Remember, I was working day and night to make sure that I could disciple you. But now that we're not there and you're back into the daily routine and things are starting to get tough and you're back into the mundane um, schedule of life, are you going to continue following Christ? Especially as persecution continues to heat up. Will you continue to be faithful? So in your notes today, we're talking about protecting the faith of others. Protecting the faith of others. He says that we're sending Timothy back to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. That no one be moved by these afflictions. So Paul's saying, despite all the fruit that I've witnessed in, in my ministry there, despite all the response that I've seen by the church to the word, I'm concerned whether or not you're going to persevere for the long haul. And I think Paul's also concerned by the fact that he says in chapter 2, Satan won't even let me come back to you guys. So if Satan's keeping me from coming back to you, what else is Satan potentially doing? Like, I can't seem to get back to you. And we said last week, we're not exactly sure what the hindrance was. Is Paul sick or, or is Paul, somehow Paul's being hindered. And, and Paul doesn't explain it. He seems to assume that the church of Thessalonica would understand that he's made attempt after attempt to come back and he just can't get there. And he attributes it to Satan. It may be just simply the, the heavy persecution. Uh, it may be the deal that Jason made with um, the authorities there when they got booted the first time. Jason and them kind of said, hey, we'll make sure that Paul doesn't come back and cause any problems. Whatever it was, Satan was hindering Paul from getting back there. And that made Paul very concerned because if Satan was so dead set on keeping Paul from getting there, what else was Satan concerned with? What else was Satan doing to that church? And that's why Paul says... In verse 5, we sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter attempted you and our labor would be in vain. So some initial application that I think we can see right off the bat in these five verses. The first thing there in your notes. The perseverance of our disciples should be a great concern to us. The perseverance of our disciples should be a great concern to us. We're understanding all these chapters in the context of discipleship. Paul's been making disciples. He's planted a church. He's shared the gospel. He's invested his life. He's taught these new converts. He's made disciples. But he's not just content with having an initial response. He's concerned about seeing these disciples make it to the end. Why? Because at the end of chapter 2, we said, they're his joy. They're his crown. They're his reward. Paul says, my life is worth everything that I go through if you guys are standing with me at the very end. My life is worth it if you're there with me at the end. That's the only reward I'm looking for. That's the only payment I need. I'm not expecting God to give me anything. It'll be good enough for me if my disciples are there with me at the end. And so Paul's saying, i got to make sure you're there at the end with me. Second initial application, there's a real threat or danger. There's a real threat or danger to the perseverance of our disciples. There is a real threat or danger to the perseverance of our disciples. Paul was concerned. Paul believes these people are Christians. 
Paul believes that he's made genuine disciples. He believes their conversion experience was genuine and real. But he's also very concerned that they're going to stop following Jesus. So there's a real threat, a real danger to the perseverance of disciples. And Paul attributes that to Satan and what Satan wants to do. Now, we believe here that you can't lose your salvation. So if you're truly a disciple, if you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. But there's also warnings in Scripture that say you have to persevere to the end to be saved. And so I think Paul would say, yeah, these disciples, they can't lose their salvation. But part of the way that they don't lose their salvation is that I've got to send Timothy back to make sure they persevere in the faith. Does that make sense? You can't lose your salvation, but don't discount the fact that the way that God keeps us from losing our salvation is that he uses us to make disciples and to continue to strengthen and encourage each other's faith. So, yeah, Scripture says you can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved. But part of the way that God keeps us saved is using the relationships within the local church to keep us persevering. So Paul says... I've got to send Timothy back. We've got to get back to the church at Thessalonica and make sure they're persevering. Because there is a real threat or danger to their perseverance. Some discipleship principles that I jotted down that came out of just reading through the first five verses myself. The first one, discipleship means developing a real burden for the continued growth of others. Discipleship means developing a real burden for the continued growth of others. This weighed heavily on Paul's mind. And he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, 28-29. Paul's kind of listed off some of the physical struggles that he has. Some of the physical persecutions that he's endured in his ministry. And then in verse 28, he tacks on some of the mental stuff that he's had to deal with. In verse 28, it says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul says, I carry around this burden constantly of worrying about how my disciples are doing. And I think it's a, it's a healthy worry. Paul, I think, fully understands that the, the salvation and sanctification and glorification of his disciples are ultimately in God's hands. But Paul also recognizes that he's the tool that God uses to, to allow these disciples to keep persevering in their faith. So Paul says, I carry around this intense burden to where when my disciples slip up and make poor decisions, it hurts me. It affects me because I've got so much invested in them. Sometimes me and Adam joke around about how silly it is for us to get worked up about a football game. That we follow Georgia and Alabama football, we keep up with it, and, and sometimes we just laugh at how humorous it is that we seriously care what 18, 19, and 20 year old boys are doing on a Saturday afternoon and whether or not they're effective in playing this game. Like, how silly it is that we get emotionally invested in something like that. But we do. Paul's saying, I'm emotionally invested in my disciples. It affects me how they're doing on a weekly basis. And I shared on the city this week that that I have that type of burden um, as a minister here at Sovereign Hope. That I seriously feel a weight and an anxiety about you guys and your spiritual walk on a weekly basis. That it hurts me when I hear that you guys have made poor decisions. When you've made sinful decisions, if there's areas that you're struggling in, it affects me. It pains me. It hurts me because of what I've got invested in you guys. I want to see you guys make it to the end. I shared with you on the city, my desire is that on on judgment day, when Jesus returns, that I'm standing before him and you guys are standing with me and you're my reward. You're my inheritance. You're my crowning joy. But in order for us to get there, it means you persevering and being faithful. And so I've got a ton personally invested in you guys. And so it's it's an anxious, anxiety-type thing for me on a weekly basis, wanting to hear that you guys are remaining faithful. And when you guys are weak or when you guys stumble and fall, it pains me just like it pained Paul when he heard about this from his churches. So discipleship means developing a real burden for the continued growth of others. 
Next, discipleship means caring about the needs of others above your own. It means caring about the needs of others above your own. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, we sent Timothy to you. He says, I couldn't get back to you guys, so I made the decision to send Timothy. A lot of, a lot of scholars believe that when he uses the phrase we, he really means me. The, most people believe that Silas has also gone back to Macedonia to work with the church at Philippi. And so ultimately, this is a huge sacrifice for Paul. Paul's saying, I'm here in Athens trying to, trying to plant a church, trying to be faithful and sharing the gospel, trying to make disciples. And I'm about to send my only ministry partner to come to you guys. I'm sending Timothy. And so Paul's ultimately saying, your comfort and, and what you need is more important than what I need. I mean, think about the persecution that Paul's already endured everywhere he's been. He's now losing his partner. Like the physical encouragement that he would have as they're enduring persecution for sharing the gospel. He's sending Timothy away. And Paul's saying, I'm going to be here in Athens all alone now. I'm not going to have a friend here in Athens. I'm not going to have anybody to help me. And he's communicating that the needs of others are more important than his own personal needs, his own personal comfort. And so that teaches us a lot about discipleship, that the needs of others are more important than our own needs and our own comfort. That discipleship requires sacrifice at times. I'll put in my notes, selfless commitment to meet others' needs is the measure of true care for others. The greatest possession Paul had was his partner in ministry, and he gave it to them. He does this on other occasions as well. In Philippians 2, 19 through 24, he, sends, or he says, I desire to send Timothy to you guys. Timothy was his greatest possession. Paul didn't have a lot of money. Paul didn't have a lot of possessions. Timothy was his greatest possession. And he was faithful to give Timothy away when it meant um, the betterment of others. Even if it meant him personally having to lose comfort and sacrifice in Timothy's absence. Next, discipleship means desiring the growth of others, even if you don't get the credit for it. Discipleship means desiring the growth of others, even if you don't get the credit for it. This is, this is big for me, because this is an area that I would struggle in. Think about this. Paul is the one who invested in this church initially. He's the one that led it. He's the one that led the, the initial planting of this church. Paul's already told us, I love you guys. I want to be with you guys. I affectionately desire you guys. I'm trying time after time to get back to you guys, and I can't get there. Satan won't let me. So I'm sending Timothy. Now imagine the, rece- the reception that Timothy will get from this church, who has is, 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 is been absent from Paul and, Silas and Tim- or Paul and Silas and Timothy haven't been with this church now for a while. Imagine the reception that Timothy will get in, in, in this church seeing him come back to them. Imagine the fruit and encouragement Timothy will experience as he begins to pour into this church again and disciple this church again. Paul has to lay aside his own personal desires, his own personal credit, in saying, I'm going to send my boy Timothy back there. And Timothy's going to reap the benefits of being able to disciple you guys. I wish I could do it, but I can't. I wish I could do this, but I can't. This is hard for me in in the context of our church. There's some of you guys that that I have great relationships with, and I want nothing more than to be able to disciple you one-on-one. Just can't. I just don't have the time. My my, my time and my schedule doesn't allow me to meet with every single person in our church one-on-one. So I'm having to learn to set aside my own desires and allow someone else to experience the joy of discipleship in an area that I would like to be doing it. But discipleship means that that we care about the growth of others, even if we don't get the credit for it. Paul recognizes Timothy is going to be the one who reaps the benefits here. But I don't care about getting the credit for it. I just want to see these people grow. And then lastly, discipleship means anticipating the dangers of our means anticipating the dangers our disciples will encounter and preparing them for it. Paul is working hard here to make sure that even if maybe Satan hasn't started tempting these people, he wants to be proactive in making sure that Satan doesn't get to these people first. He wants to be proactive in making sure that Satan and his forces do not tempt this church to turn away from the faith 
essentially rendering Paul's labor ineffective or in vain. So discipleship means anticipating the dangers and threats that our disciples will experience and making sure that we prepare them for it. All right, let's get into these verses now together. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul's attempts, number one, he continued investing himself by teaching and encouraging them. That's what he wants to do. Paul says, my initial desire is to come myself, but that's failed. And so now I'm sending Timothy to you guys. That will, that will give us success because Timothy makes it. We know that Timothy makes it because this is a letter that's, that's in response to Timothy, Timothy's visit. Timothy has already returned from this visit. He's already reported to Paul that these guys have remained faithful. And so Paul has, has experienced success in sending Timothy. So in your notes there, a faithful co-worker of the gospel. Growing people's faith in the faith. Jude chapter, Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In Jude chapter 3, the, the term faith is used in, in, in a sense as a synonym for the gospel. But in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul talks about their personal faith. And so Paul is wanting to strengthen their faith in the faith. Their faith in the gospel. He personalizes it and says it's your faith. It's your belief in the gospel that we're all about encouraging right now. And so he's sending Timothy to, to do this, to exhort and to encourage these people's faith in the faith. I think it's important to note, just as a, as a side note, the, the elevated view that Paul has of Timothy. Timothy is a guy that Paul shared the gospel with. Timothy got saved and Paul's been discipled him. So Paul basically got Timothy at infancy. And he poured himself into Timothy. And he now refers to Timothy as a brother. And he gives a pretty startling title to Timothy. He says, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. He doesn't say my co-worker. He doesn't say my partner. He labels him as God's co-worker. For some of the scribes who, who copied the manuscripts... This title was offensive to them that they changed it in some of the manuscripts and gave him the title of deacon. That they had a hard time seeing, like, how can we be God's co-worker? How can we be partnered with God in the gospel? But Paul's essentially saying, Timothy has the role of taking the gospel and sharing it. That, yeah, it's all about God. God's the one that accomplishes salvation. But God chooses not to do that absent from us. We said that people can't be saved unless they hear the gospel. And how can people hear the gospel unless it's spoken to them by people? The normal pattern, God doesn't send angels to proclaim the gospel. God doesn't send dreams to proclaim the gospel. The normal pattern is God uses us, individual human beings, to proclaim the gospel. And so Paul can label Timothy as God's co-worker. He says he's God's co-worker. In the gospel, it's an elevated view that Paul has of his disciple. He's now seeing his disciple, Timothy, as an equal counterpart in ministry. All right, we're going to see that Timothy, as God's co-worker, does three things. He does three things. Number one, he establishes others in their faith. And you go ahead and write these in. Number one, he establishes others in their faith. Number two, he exhorts others in their faith. And number three, he prepares others for attacks to their faith. He establishes others in their faith. He exhorts others in their faith. And he prepares others for attacks to their faith. Ultimately, the, the goal is given to us in verse three. He says, Timothy, brother, God's co-worker in the gospel... I'm sending him to establish and exhort you in your faith. Number th- in verse 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined 
for this. The focus is to keep disciples from being moved. That's Paul's focus here. He says, the issue is that we're afraid that you guys are going to be moved by these afflictions. And so we're sending Timothy to exhort you, to encourage you, to teach you, so that you will not be moved by these afflictions. Paul's fear is that his disciples will be lured away from the faith due to their vulnerability from persecution. His fear is that they will turn from their faith so the persecution will stop. In your notes there, Satan's goal is not to bring affliction. You understand that? Satan's goal is not to, to make Christians suffer. That's not, that's not Satan's ultimate goal. Satan's ultimate goal is to, to move us in our suffering. Meaning that because of persecution, because of suffering, we move away from trusting God. We move away from our faith in God. We begin to doubt the goodness of God. And we turn from our faith and the persecution stops. Paul's fear, and we've already said in chapter 2, they're being persecuted by their countrymen. They're being, they're being beaten and, and, and abused and, and just beaten up for, for being Christians. And Paul says it's just like Jesus. It's just like the other prophets. Persecution is normal when it comes to being a Christian. And Paul's saying my fear is that in the midst of this persecution, you guys are going to crumble. You guys are going to turn from the faith so that the persecution will stop. There's a scene. um, You've seen the movie Braveheart. At the very end of the movie Braveheart, the, the goal the English are angry at William Wallace for trying to lead um, a revolution for the Scottish people. They want their independence. And at the very end of the movie, they're torturing uh, William Wallace. And the guy who's responsible for the torturing keeps coming up to him saying, if you'll just, if you'll just recant, if you'll just give up your mission of pursuing freedom, this will all stop. Meaning, I'm not here to, to make you suffer. I'm trying to make you suffer so you'll stop what you're trying to do. That's what Satan does in in the midst of persecution for the church. Satan's goal is not to make Christians suffer. His his goal is to move us from our faith in the midst of suffering. And that was Paul's fear here. Is that the persecution on these people was going to eventually make them stop having faith in God. That their their perspective on God would change. That they would begin to see him as, as not a good God. It's the same ploy that Satan uses in the garden. He gets Eve and Adam to doubt the goodness of God. God has has put Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, look, you're here. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. We're going to be in perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. And Satan comes and begins to get into the head of Eve and says, God's not good. Like God's trying to hold you back. God knows that if you were to eat of this tree, you would be just like him. And so he's trying to control you. He's trying to withhold good things from you. And Eve buys into that lie and she eats of the fruit. And Adam follows suit with her. Satan's Satan's motive has always been to make us doubt the goodness of God. And in the midst of this persecution, Paul's afraid that these Christians will begin to doubt the goodness of God. So he's sending Timothy, number one, to establish others in their faith. To establish others in their faith. It's just to establish and exhort you in your faith. This word establish, it means to strengthen or to make firm or to fix. To strengthen, to make firm or to fix. Which is obviously a good picture of the opposite of being moved in the midst of affliction. The teaching aspect of this. Paul is sending Timothy back to Teach sound doctrine. A deep knowledge of God as he has revealed himself in his word. He's sending him back to teach sound doctrine. Paul recognizes that these guys have got to have a deep knowledge of God. So they do not doubt God's goodness in the midst of all this persecution. I mean, think about it. Life has gotten bad for the Thessalonians ever since they decided decided to follow Christ. The picture is that life was fine before Paul showed up. But they didn't have enemies before Paul showed up. Now they got angry Jewish people that are trying to kill them for their faith. They got angry Gentile people who are just angry because the Jewish people are angry. And everybody's angry at this church in Thessalonica. 
And think about it. You got the Jewish people and the Gentiles saying, your leader left you. Your leaders, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they abandoned you. If you'll just stop, if you'll just stop following Christ, all this persecution will stop. Life will go back to the way it was. And so they're having to endure in the midst of this persecution. They don't have emails and they don't have phones to, to hear from Paul. Paul's silent for them. They, they, they're not hearing from Paul. They don't know what's going on with Paul and Timothy and Silas. All they know is they're being persecuted for their faith. And there's a concern by Paul that they're going to abandon the faith. So he's sending Timothy to teach sound doctrine. The time frame for this, for you, as you establish disciples here at Sovereign Hope, as we establish their faith, it's a never-ending, ongoing process. It's a never-ending, ongoing process that is ultimately accomplished by God. It's a never-ending, ongoing process. We never reach the point where we're so established in our faith that we don't need to be established anymore. In Second uh, Peter 1. In verse 12 it says, he, he just kind of listed off like a lot of instruction Peter has. And in verse 12 he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter says, I'm going to keep reminding you of this stuff. Even though you already know it, even though you're already established in it, I'm going to continue to remind you of the truths of Scripture. Why? Verse 13, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter says, I'm going to keep reminding you of this stuff so that if I'm not with you, you've got it so ingrained in your mind, you recall it on your own. He says, I'm going to continue to teach you stuff that you already know. That you're already established in. Why? Because when I'm gone... I want you to be so established in it that you can recall it yourself. And Paul has the same desire, and we have to have the same desire as God begins to bring new believers into our church. That it's not some ten-week thing that we take people through and we say, great, so-and-so is a disciple now, let's move on to the next person. That we have a responsibility to establish people deeply in their faith. That they have a deep knowledge of how God has revealed himself in his word. Why? So that when afflictions come... When trials and persecutions come, they will not be moved. Peter says, when I'm gone, I want it to be so ingrained in your mind that you can recall it yourself. Paul says, we didn't get enough time with you guys, essentially, to the church of Thessalonica. We got forced out before we were done with what we wanted to do. And so we're sending Timothy back to continue establishing you in your faith. Number two, exhort others in their faith. This carries the idea of to urge or to comfort. And it's that same word again for the Holy Spirit. The the comforter. It's the same word that's a title for the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy back. He's a co-worker of God in the gospel. My desire is that you guys, every single one of you, would be God's co-workers in the gospel here in this area. And to be a co-worker, it means that you are establishing people in their faith. You are teaching them sound doctrine. But secondly, that you're able to exhort people in their faith. To urge them, to comfort them, to play the role of the Holy Spirit in a sense in their life. To encourage them in their pursuit of Christ. The teaching here is not sound doctrine, it's personal application. Personal application. It's accountability to living out what the Word teaches. Isn't that a good picture of what discipleship is? It's teaching knowledge about God and then teaching how to live according to that knowledge. He says we're sending Timothy to teach you knowledge about God and then to teach you how to live according to that knowledge. We want to establish you and then also exhort you. We want to fill your head with knowledge and then translate that knowledge to your heart so that you live it out on a weekly basis. Establishing people in their faith, exhorting people in their faith. The time frame again, an ongoing, never-ending process. Hebrews 3.13. The 
but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's another threat to our, per- our perseverance. That we exhort one another in a local church every day so that none of us become hardened with sin. That's why it's not good enough just to meet on Sundays and not be in contact with each other during the week. Too much can happen in the course of a week to push people off the course of following Christ. If all we said was, eh, Sunday mornings is good enough for us, that's the only time we're going to meet, that's not going to cut it. Now, we don't have a lot of regularly scheduled meetings as a church because we're encouraging you guys to spend time with each other during the week on your own. We're not just saying that Sunday mornings is the only time we need to get together. Why? Because the the author of Hebrews says, you guys have to exhort each other daily. Because the threat of being hardened to sin is so serious. The temptation that comes from the tempter is so serious. If we're not careful, people will begin to get off track. And And they'll start to move from their faith. So we we establish people in their faith, we teach them sound doctrine, and we teach them how to live according to that doctrine. In Acts 14, this is a picture of what Paul, I think, is wanting to do with the Thessalonians. This would have been maybe the normal pattern for Paul. It says in 21 of Acts chapter 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city... And it made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the the pattern seems to be let's plant churches. Let's move on and plant churches, and let's move on and plant churches, and then let's double back around again and hit them up again the second time. Let's go back and continue to establish them in the faith, continue to encourage them in the faith, continue to remind them that persecution, persecutions and trials and troubles are a natural part of being a Christian. He goes back and establishes elders, so essentially that he doesn't have to go back a third time. And that seems to be the pattern that's being broken here by Satan. He's established the church in Thessalonica. He's wanting to double back around again and encourage them to make sure that the gospel really has taken root. But Satan is hindering him from that process. And so that's why Timothy is being sent. And so Timothy is accomplishing what the group accomplishes in Acts 14. It's to go back and continue the process of discipleship. To continue to teach To continue to exhort them in their faith. Hebrews 10.25. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's an ongoing process. We continue to encourage each other. Until Jesus comes back, basically. There's not a point where you become a disciple and you don't need encouragement and exhortation anymore. You will never disciple somebody so much that you don't need to encourage them and continue to exhort them in the faith. We're told in the book of Hebrews, we continue to encourage and exhort our disciples until Jesus comes back. So Timothy is being sent to teach sound doctrine, to teach personal application. And then number three, to prepare them for attacks to their faith. He says, we're sending Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Paul's not concerned about the persecutions. He's not concerned about the afflictions. He's not concerned about how to get rid of them. He's not sending Timothy back to cut any deals to stop the persecution. He says, church, we're destined for persecution. So just get used to it. Like, we're not trying to figure out how to get rid of the persecution. It's going to come. Jesus promised it. We're destined for it. What I am concerned about is you being faithful in the persecution. That's my greatest concern. 
The teaching here in your notes, for the Christian, normality is persecution. Normality is persecution. Paul says we're destined for this. Almost in the sense that he's trying to encourage this church by saying, if you're being persecuted, know that everything's going just as it should be. Because see, our tendency would be like, well, well, I'm not comfortable. Um, this is hard. Am I doing something wrong? That goes into the mindset that God owes us something because we've given our life to him. And so the, the natural tendency for these young Christians is to see all the persecution and think, are we doing something wrong? Like, where's God in this? Where's God's faithfulness? Where's God's goodness in this? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you're being persecuted, if things are hard for you, then you're exactly where you should be. It's, it's almost like a marker. Maybe you've ever been uh, trying to get from one place to another and you're not exactly sure how to get there. And you're looking for markers on the way to indicate, oh, yeah, this is the way I'm supposed to go. Lauren and I were driving to Adam and Jen's the other day. We were going a, a different way than we normally go. And I'd only been that way one time. And I was, I was trying to remember, is this the right way or not? And I remember a marker. I remember seeing a house that stood out to me the first time. And when I saw it the second time, immediately I was like, yep, this is where I'm supposed to be. And it gave me confidence to go ahead and hit the gas pedal and keep on going because this is the way we're supposed to be going. That's what Paul's saying to this church. He's saying, look around you. You got persecution? Good. That's what you're supposed to be getting. You're in the right place. You're doing the right thing. You're destined for this. He's wanting to encourage them not to be moved in their faith. That they are on the right path. They are on the right court. This is exactly what you should be experiencing. You want to get to glory? You want to spend eternity with Christ? This is the way to go. This is exactly where you're supposed to be. It serves as a marker. To leave, and I'll put this in my notes, to leave converts unwarned of the probable, adverse, personal consequences of their acceptance of the gospel is to do them a serious injustice. Let me say that again. To leave converts unwarned of the probable, adverse, personal consequences of their acceptance of the gospel is to do them a serious injustice. As we're faithful to share the gospel in this area, as we seek to make disciples in this area, we have a responsibility to warn people that there are consequences for following Christ. Now, the benefits far outweigh the consequences, obviously. We're all through the New Testament, we're told these, these afflictions, these temporary persecutions are nothing in light of the glory that we will experience when Jesus returns. But if we're not careful to warn people that when you sign up to follow Jesus, you become a target for the enemy. You are putting yourself in the line of fire of the enemy. Then we do them a disservice. We do them a disservice because normality for a Christian is suffering and persecution. We have a responsibility to share that as we share the gospel. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. And then we'll look specifically at how Satan attacks. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Don't, don't just blow over those verses. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I mean, that, that sounds like a bad scenario. Jesus says, if you're experiencing that scenario, you're right where you should be. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 7 through 17, we'll just skip down to verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, Paul's reminder that, yes, we will go through afflictions and trials and troubles, but it doesn't compare to what we will receive in glory. Let's look at three ways that Satan attacks. Three ways that Satan can attack our church and what we're trying to do here. First, he blinds people to the faith. He blinds people to the faith. 
This is where, this is what Paul's concern is with the church at Thessalonica. Is that Satan is functioning in, in these ways. He blinds people to the faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has the ability to blind people to the gospel. That we can share the gospel with people and it will not penetrate to their hearts because they are blinded by Satan. Secondly, he destroys opportunities for faith. He destroys opportunities for faith. Matthew chapter 13, the story or the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus is explaining the parable. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. In the parable of the sower, there's some seed that just gets dropped along the path. And Jesus says, this is a picture of people who are, who are shared the gospel with, but it, it doesn't do anything. It's blinded. People are blinded to it. Satan just comes and snatches it right up. But then he goes on to say, verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Persecution shows that these people aren't Christians, really, that they didn't really receive the gospel. This is another way that Satan attacks, is that he allows people to, or if, if the gospel does get through to them, if his blinding doesn't work and it and initially gets into them and they're interested and they're, they're wanting to respond to the gospel and they start to make that response to the gospel, but then when things get hard, they fall away. Satan puts the pressure on them. He applies persecution to them, and the gospel is yanked away again. And then there's a third way. For people who have received the gospel, he weakens and hinders the faith of believers. He weakens and hinders the faith of believers. Look at the, the things that Paul attributes to Satan here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. This is talking about the, the relationship between a husband and a wife. Paul's giving them encouragement to not withhold each other sexually. To not withhold the sexual relationship from each other. He says, do not deprive one another. That you may, only if you're going to do it for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan wants to weaken and hinder our faith. And this is a way that Paul says he can do that. He can tempt us into sin. He can destroy the unity of a husband-wife relationship. If it's not functioning the way that it should, if it's not functioning the way that it should, Satan can come in and, and can tempt and can lead people astray, make them be moved. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. This is talking about... Um, a church discipline issue that had happened in the first letter. And now Paul's encouraging forgiveness. He says in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul's saying it's so crucial that you guys forgive one another. Especially in this context of church discipline, that forgiveness and unity happen. Why? Because Satan would love nothing more than to rip the church apart into disunity. Paul says, we don't, let's don't be outwitted by Satan. Let's don't be ignorant of what he wants to do here. Satan would love for the church to fall apart because it fails to forgive each other. Because it holds grudges and, and um, doesn't forgive sin when it's appropriate to forgive sin. Paul says, don't be outwitted by Satan. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul playing on that aspect of being a dad again. He's saying, as the dad, I'm wanting to give you as my daughter to Christ. He's like, I want you guys to be faithful when Jesus returns. 
Verse 3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, the threat of Satan moving us, moving us in our faith, hindering our faith. And we've already seen in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that Satan was specifically hindering the sanctification of the church at Thessalonica because he was keeping Paul from getting there to teach them. He blinds people to the faith. He destroys opportunities for faith. He weakens and hinders the faith of believers. Satan wants us to doubt the goodness of God and be moved in the midst of our afflictions. Therefore, this is the the two-way response to afflictions. Afflictions can either stop the gospel if we are lured away. That's what Satan wants, is that afflictions stop the gospel. Or afflictions can sound forth the gospel. When we respond joyfully in faith. That's what the church at Thessalonica was doing. That whole chapter 1 was Paul hearing the report from Timothy that the afflictions hadn't lured them away. Hadn't moved them in their faith. Instead, the gospel had sounded forth. The gospel had sounded forth. The afflictions were having the opposite result of what Satan wanted. Satan wanted afflictions to stop it. To stop the gospel movement, but instead afflictions were causing the gospel to be sounded forth. The church was growing in the midst of persecution. Resisting Satan means being established in your faith. Being established in your faith. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy to you guys. Why? To establish you in your faith. Why? Because the Satan, the tempter, is going to want to move you from your faith. The way we resist Satan... 1 Peter 5, 6-11, through we're told that Satan is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the way we resist him, let's read it together. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, how? How do we resist him? Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We resist the roaring lion by being established in our faith so that when suffering does come, we have dug down deep. We have a foundation that rests on the rock. The the story of the foolish man and the wise man. That we build our house on the rock. We respond to God's word. We're established so that when storms and anxieties and and afflictions come, we are grounded and we are not moved in the way that Satan wants us to be. Some application questions. How can we prepare better for trials and persecution? One activity that I've encouraged you guys to do and I would encourage you guys again. One way that you can prepare for trials and persecutions is to think about them happening to you and picture how you would respond to them. You imagine, what if this happened to me? You prepare yourself by thinking about some worst case scenarios and how you would respond accordingly. I can't imagine anything more devastating than losing Lauren. That if I were to find out on my way home that Lauren had been killed in a car wreck. That would be very devastating for me. So there are times when I contemplate, what would it look like if God took Lauren from me? How would I respond? And I try to visualize myself responding to such a negative scenario. I'm not immune from God taking Lauren. I'm not immune from God taking our baby. There's times when I think about, well, what happens if God takes our baby from us? I want to anticipate those type of things. I want to anticipate trials and persecutions. Because... Flat out honest, I'm not experiencing a lot of it in my life right now. So I got some time to think about it. I got some extra time to think about it because unfortunately I'm not maybe living the way that I should to where I'm getting these type of persecutions. And so I try to visualize what would happen if these type of things were thrown my way by Satan and his forces. How would I respond in such a way that I would not be moved in the midst of them? How would I respond so that the gospel sounds forth? Instead of being hindered because of my response. How can we prepare better for trials and persecutions? We can think about them and anticipate them. The last two things. Am I being established and exhorted in my faith? 
Am I being faithful to establish and exhort others? you got to be in one of these. You may look at it and say, look, I'm, I'm not where I need to be to make disciples. I, I don't know how to establish somebody else in their faith. I don't know how to exhort somebody in their faith. If that's where you're at, then you need to be some, with somebody who can teach you how to do that. You need to be a disciple being discipled by somebody. But there's some of you in this room, you're equipped to do this. You're equipped to make disciples. You know how to establish people in their faith. You know how to exhort people in their faith. Are you being faithful to do that? We want to be a church that's known for disciple making. The early church was known for disciple making. This is the pattern that that Paul has laid out in his church plans. He's now using one of his disciples to make more disciples. He's seeing that third generation of discipleship happen. He's discipled Timothy, and now Timothy's discipling others. This is a true model for what this would look like. Paul is so secure in Timothy's abilities. He says, I can send Timothy to you guys, and he's going to establish you in your faith. He's going to exhort you in your faith. I don't have to be there. I would love to be there, but I don't have to be there. Because I've, I've invested myself in Timothy, and he's good. He's good to go. He's my brother. He's God's co-worker. He can establish you in your faith. In order for this church to grow, it can't just be me. It can't just be Tyson. It can't just be any couple of individuals making disciples. For this church to grow, we have to all be able to establish and exhort people in their faith. Imagine what it would look like if we had 25, 30 people who were confident, ready, desiring to establish and exhort people in their faith. Imagine how much more confident we would feel about planning outreach and mission opportunities, saying, if we have 10 people saved today, we got 30 people that are ready to establish and exhort them in their faith. Sometimes I hesitate in wanting to do missions because I don't know if we're ready to handle it. I don't know if we're ready to start putting people together saying, hey, I need you to exhort and encourage this person in their faith. My desire is that we're a church that makes disciples. But in order for us to make disciples, we have to be the type of people that can establish and exhort people in their faith. And if you don't feel like you can do that yet, then you've got to take steps to get there. And that means getting with someone and being discipled by them. Questions or thoughts that that gives you before we close? Any thoughts or questions about that? I want the sobering reality of what Paul says about Satan in here to... um, To keep you reflecting on this as we leave today. There's a real danger. There's a real danger to this church and to the growth of this church. We are up against satanic forces. My prayer is that we really will be up against satanic forces. I shared with you last week. My fear is that what keeps this church from growing is our own tiredness and our own laziness and our own busyness. My desire is that we are actively advancing the gospel to where Satan does feel like he has to send reinforcements to Sonoy. My hope is that Satan can't redistribute his forces from Sonoy and say, Sonoy is not a problem right now. It's not a threat right now. We need to focus in this area more. My hope is that as a church, we get active about advancing the gospel, that it shows up on Satan's radar and he says, we've got to send some reinforcements to Sonoy. We've got to start hindering stuff down there because those guys have gotten serious about the gospel. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have saved us from our own sin. God, we're thankful that you have called us into relationship with you and that in that relationship you have given us an assignment. You have called us to be co-workers with you in the gospel. That your plan is to save this world from sin. And the way you plan to do that is through advancing the gospel through human beings. So God, I praise you and thank you that you have called us, you've entrusted us with the gospel, and you are now calling us to entrust others with the gospel. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us how to do that as a church. God, that you would continue to establish us in our own faith. That you would continue to exhort us in our own faith. So that we can establish and exhort others. God, I pray that you would protect the people of this church this week from Satan. 
God, I pray that you protect them from the temptations that may be thrown their way this week. God, that in the midst of sufferings and trials and afflictions that we may experience this week, that we would not be moved in our faith. God, I pray that each person in this church would make wise decisions that they're faced with this week. God, that they would resist sin. They would respond to the word. God, for those that are being discipled, God, I pray that you would give them the the wisdom to to be obedient to what their discipler calls them to. God, the church at Thessalonica had a response to, to listen to Timothy when he showed up. That in order for them to be established and exhorted in their faith, they had to respond to Timothy. And so, God, I pray for people in our church that are being discipled, that they would respond to their disciples as their disciples seek to establish them in their faith and exhort them in their faith and turn them from sin. God, I pray that we would be prepared and ready when you begin to bring us new believers. God, I pray that it would happen soon. God, that we would be serious about advancing the gospel, that we would begin to multiply this church through, through new conversions, through people who are coming to belief in Christ through our efforts. pray that you would use our church to advance your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.